Hi, everyone. It is Hillary Kennedy, uh, Program Director for Medicaid Leadership at NAND, and I'm so happy to welcome you back to our podcast series, Medicaid Leadership Exchange, where we explore priority topics in conversation with Medicaid leaders. NAMD is working on this series with the Center for Healthcare Strategies, and we thank the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation for their support, which makes the podcast series possible. We're continuing to feature conversations between Medicaid directors and members of their executive team as they share their insights and strategies on various key topics. Once again, we're joined today by Gretchen Hammer, who is moderating the conversation. Gretchen's a familiar voice to those of you who have listened to earlier podcast episodes or who have engaged with her as part of her work as NAMD's Senior Strategic Advisor. She's also an alumni member of NAMD as the former Medicaid Director in Colorado. With that, I'll turn it over to Gretchen to say a few words and welcome today's conversation participants. Gretchen? Terrific. Thank you. Hello, everyone. It's nice to be with you again on this podcast. Today, we are going to focus our attention on maternal and infant mortality strategies. Many of us are aware of the heartbreaking statistics around maternal and infant mortality rates, and Medicaid and public health agencies across the country are working together to identify strategies and initiatives that could address this issue and increase the likelihood of healthy birth outcomes and postpartum periods. We are fortunate today to have a number of leading minds on this issue joining us to talk about the role that Medicaid and public health can play we have representatives from the states of Ohio, Virginia, and New Jersey, as well as ASTO, who will help us explore this conversation and talk about ways in which Medicaid programs and public health agencies can continue to make progress on this very important issue. So I'd like to start perhaps with uh, Virginia, who has a very high profile initiative led by the governor focused on healthy birth outcomes, in particular for women of, uh, who are African-American. And so maybe uh, Virginia, if I could turn it over to you and ask a little bit of, about an overview of the programs that you have going on in your state. That'd be great. Uh, this, uh, hello everyone, this is Karen Kinsey and it's a pleasure uh, to be here with you today. So, and I'm happy to kick this off and speak. So in Virginia, the maternal mortality rate for black women is over two times as high as white women, according to the Virginia Department of Health's Office of the Chief Medical Examiner. So in June of 2019, our governor, Ralph Northam, announced his commitment to reduce racial disparities in maternal mortality by 2025. In the press release from the office of the governor, Governor Northam stated that this is a worthy goal that is perfectly within our reach by 2025, and he directed the leaders in the Health and Human Services to develop strategies and programs to meet this goal. So Governor Northam supported his goal to combat the issues by designating $22 million in its proposed biennial budget. The budget request includes extended coverage for our Medicaid benefit for pregnant women called Famous Moms, a new home visiting services benefit, and a work group that will focus on Medicaid reimbursement for doulas. He received bipartisan support from both our delegates and our senators who joined him to address racial disparities and improve maternal and infant health. Our Secretary of Health and Human Resources, Dr. Daniel Carey, responded by saying that we would make a bold commitment in improving maternal health in Virginia to ensure that women in Virginia will have access to high quality care and service before, during, and after pregnancy. 
Dr. Carey and his office, under the guidance of our Deputy Secretary, Gina Boyle-Berger, held 10 lessening sessions across the Commonwealth between September and October of last year. The listening sessions were a diverse open forum to hear from women, providers, and advocates who testified to both the successes and areas of concern in accessing the healthcare delivery system. I am now going to turn it over to Cheryl Roberts, who is our Deputy for Program Operations here at the agency. Hi, I'm Cheryl Roberts. I'm going to finish this piece. Um, obviously, Virginia is working with that kind of leadership and that kind of uh, direction. Uh, Karen gave us the task of actually beginning to implement this vision. Uh, one of the things that we found from the listening session, which was consistent with what we have heard, is that implicit racial biases we were seeing both in the phys physician offices as well as other services. What we've learned is, is that the issues of morbidity is actually divided by race. So that Caucasian women we find is usually the issues of drugs and for mental health. For African American women it's mostly chronic conditions like cardiac disease, diabetes, and high blood pressure that were not previously identified. So how we're going to be addressing this is one, the biggest one was the expansion. Uh, the expansion, um, actually, we covered 37,000 deliveries now, which is one-third of the birth. But with the expansion now, we'll see women before and after, which means that we have an, an opportunity to address their health care issues, not just when they identify to be pregnant for 60 days, but therefore after. And so we're looking at that, particularly for issues like SUDS and for high blood pressure. You really need a longevity in order to do that. Uh, Karen asked us to come up with strategies. DMAS came up with 10 strategies. As fast as I talk, I am not going to go through all 10 because <laughs> it will take some time. What I will say is that we're working as a team, uh, both on the eligibility, the delivery system, the clinical team, and data reporting. And we're doing some fun things right now that we think are good. One was outreach efforts. Uh, we have some radio spots as well as digital and social media ads, particularly aimed at pregnant women, because the goal is to get the woman to actually enroll as quickly as possible. Um, sadly, one-third of the women who actually deliver in Virginia Medicaid are coming in in their third trimester. We would like to change that. We're hoping the expansion will do that. Uh, we're also realizing, and I think I brought this up in November, is that the group we're trying to talk to do not, does not read letters. So all the letters we're sending are going into trash. And I know because I have a 20-year-old at home, and if it's not on Instagram or Snapchat, she does not look at it. So the answer is now we realize that we have to actually do Instagram and YouTube, and we've got a team working to do that so that we can actually reach this population and educate them on how to access the care as well as to understand what parenting means because we need that. Um, we'll also be looking at the governor's initiative. I do not want to ignore that. Uh, different than New Jersey, guess what? We have to do it by 2021. We will have doulas involved in managed care by that period of time. Uh, we're working aggressively that way. We'll be doing a work group, but the goal is to have everyone enrolled by 2021. Also the same for home visiting. Uh, we're also expanding our coverage for famous moms so that famous moms will have postpartum coverage beyond uh, the 60 days. And we're working with our VDH and DSS partners. Uh, VDH is our health department and our DSS. We're working because we realize one of the big issues is social determinants of health. Uh, we're starting to recognize that women do not have those services like food and shelter, and that's making a difference in their health outcomes. So one of the things we're going to be doing is working with WIC to do a joint project with WIC and SNAP so that we can make sure that they get food. But one of the things we're happy for is our managed care plans have taken an aggressive uh, response to this. 
Right now, they're providing food for two weeks after the woman actually delivers, as well as 400 diapers for the most part. What we want to see is we can move that forward so that we can actually see if we can get food to women um, all through their pregnancy. So that's on the list. And then do not want to answer that we also have a strong substance abuse program called ARTS, and now we're working really to target that ARTS program to do some maternal work, both on substance abuse infants as well as screenings. And last but not least, we're also trying to do a data, do more with our data. Data is really going to be driving a lot of our policies, and our data group is going to be developing a dashboard on maternity and pregnant women so that everyone can be actually to watch it and to track it. Terrific. Thank you so much, Karen and Cheryl. That is an amazing overview of the efforts you have going on in Virginia. Um, Jen, maybe I'll turn to New Jersey next, another state that has gotten a lot of um, high-profile coverage of the multiple strategies that you're using in your state. Maybe, again, a high-level overview of what you're working on. Sure, I'm happy to. Hi, everybody. Um, it's great to hear the voices of my friends in Virginia there uh, and elsewhere. So um, I'm excited to talk to you about this today. We have a statewide interagency strategy here in New Jersey, um, which is already complex as soon as I say those words. Um, but thankfully, we have the First Lady's Office really providing leadership at the center of it all so that we're coordinating across agencies to try to solve this problem that we have in New Jersey. Our disparity here um, between black women and white women's birth outcomes is the second worst in the nation and it is incredibly shocking every time i say that a black woman is five times more likely to die in childbirth in new jersey than a white woman um, that keeps me up at night and it gets me out of bed in the morning we are really focused on solving this problem and that means being very strategic with our sister agencies so the department of health the Department of Children and Families, the Division of uh, Mental Health and Addiction Services, and others, um, and again, all through the First Lady's Office with that leadership, which is incredible. And um, so a number of things we're working on. The one that is top of mind for me all the time is our doula program. Uh, we have been uh, working with our doula community on uh, a work group that is really trying to put together the pieces to make sure that when we roll out a doula benefit for New Jersey Medicaid, it's authentic to the communities that we serve. It's innovative in its approach. And, uh, and we talk all the time about uh, technical challenge and adaptive challenge or technical change and adaptive change and um, making sure that we're doing that, both of those things. So the technical changes we need to make, right? We need to uh, submit to CMS for authority. We need to configure our systems. We need to amend managed care contracts. We could do all the things we need to do technically, but if we do not address building a workforce, if we do not address bringing the hospitals around to welcoming doulas into labor and delivery suite, if we do not address the visibility of the, the service being available to our members, then we really haven't done the thing the way we need to do it. So we're trying to make sure that we're doing the technical work and the adaptive, you know, hearts and minds kind of work uh, in tandem. We're also um, excited about the family planning benefits that we rolled out in the fall. Um, that's well underway at this point and providing family planning coverage 
to uh, women who otherwise don't qualify for Medicaid up to a certain income level. Um, and, and that's in motion and looking pretty good. In the, in the going forward, uh, there's way more than I could talk about today, but I just I wanted to share a couple of things. Um, New Jersey's finalizing requirements right now to uh, implement uh, no more payment for early elective deliveries, which we recognize to be part of the problem. Um, we're also providing the centering group therapy for moms. So that's in motion. We found that there are times when women are willing to ask questions and share in a group setting um, that is maybe a little bit more comfortable than that one-on-one -on -one conversation in the doctor's office. And so we want to make that centering benefit available. And then another really important piece out of many is um, the perinatal risk assessment uh, making sure that we have really strong electronic data available for measurement and uh, and obviously for addressing issues in real time. So we will be implementing uh, changes in our system so that we are no longer paying for prenatal care or deliveries in the absence of receiving that perinatal risk assessment from the provider. Um, that allows us to put care management in motion. It allows us to offer doula services to moms. There's, it, it's an important assessment for us to have and we're making it mandatory. Um, one last piece I just wanted to mention quickly because it's in the news. We're expecting to roll out implicit bias training in our healthcare facilities. And, uh, and we see that also as a really important piece of the puzzle. Um, I think that any responsible healthcare facility would tell you that they have policies and procedures that are meant to help clinicians, you know, and non-clinicians making decisions inside their walls. Um, but the fact is that bias is a real thing and we need to be talking about it so that we can be addressing it. So rolling out that training statewide is a really important piece of our vision as well. Terrific. Thank you, Jen. And again, you know, the, the use of the tools of Medicaid in terms of benefit structure, payment policy, the workforce that you're working with, and then the use of data um, is really remarkable. Uh, Mary, I'll turn it to you in Ohio um, to share uh, some of the work that you all have been doing in Ohio. Yes, thank you very much. So on behalf of Director Corcoran and everyone else on our Ohio team, we're super delighted to be with you. So I ditto many of the uh, efforts and sentiments from the prior speakers, and I think what I'd like to point out related to infant and maternal mortality, which are inexorably connected, is that this has really uh, given us a focus in how it is we run our program. I think it's pretty clear across the country that we have a fee-for-service infrastructure, and with an infrastructure like that, there is no care coordination, and if you're a service provider, you find people and deliver your service without paying attention to the patient journey nor the life course. And we think those aspects are actually part of why we're in the trouble that we're in. So I will note that, uh, uh, like Virginia, we have huge support from the governor's office. And like the other speakers, we have partnerships with public health as well as community organizations who deal with social determinants of health. 
our approach has been um, really an evolution. So we used to start by identifying gaps and then covering them, like tobacco services, having dietitians, postpartum depression screening. And uh, from there, we actually moved to better systems within managed care, having enhanced maternal care guidelines, changing our pay for performance measures to include women's health, doing auto assignments based on measures related to maternity care, like prenatal visits in the first trimester and postpartum visits. After that, we actually started doing a better job with data, and I think this was really the game changer. Uh, I think we started to understand just the extent of the disparities that then prompted us to go to communities and, like the other states, listen to what the experience of care is for women in Ohio. And it was really distressing. The implicit bias comments are taken to heart. Women did not feel like they trusted the health system and often were not treated with respect. And then this is part of the inability to seek care. So we try to leverage our perinatal quality collaborative to help us with uh, quality improvement efforts at the level of the hospital. And it works, that worked well within hospitals, but not necessarily in the communities. So when we moved to the communities, we had to have a whole different strategy. So through the budget, we invest $26 million in every biennium through the managed care plans to ask the communities what they think they need in order to address the disparities in infant mortality and maternal mortality. And the three main efforts focused on having community health workers in some shape or form, um, using uh, doulas or navigators, as well as doing centering and home visits. Uh, we also had um, a number of innovative things with daddy boot camps and just trying to provide additional emotional social supports for moms. And with that, over the last four years, we've seen a 4% reduction in the disparities in the biggest communities that have the racial disparities. So I'll note, though, that uh, the continued financing of these efforts has uh, come under fire, perhaps. And we are trying to figure out how to have a home visiting program with dyad care, mom and baby together, at least for that first year after their baby's born. So we're still in the process of designing that and trying to figure out how we could pay a per member per month to actually get that to happen, not unlike what we might see in other states like the arts program um, for moms with SUD in particular. The other thing that I will note is although we have special programs for moms with opioid use disorder, our focus really is primarily on the African-American uh, disparity. So to that end, uh, we are exploring telehealth as an option. Um, so we changed our rules last July. And in addition, we would like to implement a required pregnancy risk assessment form, perhaps not to the extent that New Jersey has where there's no payment for the delivery, uh, but instead with incentives, significant incentives on the part of the managed care plans. And what we've done with this form is it's a web-based tool, and it automatically will notify the county so that women don't get dropped off the program inadvertently during pregnancy. That was one of the biggest things we learned uh, in our progesterone effort that reduced preterm births about 20% was this connection to systems, the technical work, as I heard uh, my colleague talk about, um, but trying to um, switch from just fee-for-service to actually fundamentally getting to population health management has been an education curve with all of our uh, clinical partners. So I think I'll, I'll pause there. Terrific. Well, just amazing work going on um, across these three Medicaid programs. So as you all, um, the three Medicaid states talked, you know, again, you're using a lot of the tools of, of um, 
the Medicaid program benefit structure payment and here in Ohio, you know, really trying to innovate for even new delivery system payment models around that PMPM idea. What kind of um, work have you had to do as it relates to data and sort of knowing you're on the right track, um, right? Pregnancy takes some time. Uh, these are big population health issues. How have you measured your progress or sort of identified ways in which you'll know whether or not you're on the right track or if you need to change direction? Uh, this is Mary in Ohio. I can start uh, this conversation if you like. Uh, I think you're aware that many of the states have uh, really embraced the notion of dashboards. Uh, what's interesting about that is our main source of data is claims, uh, which lag significantly behind uh, reality. So while those are helpful to follow trends over time, they're not as useful in trying to understand what we're doing in real life so that we can change what we're doing at the point of service to ultimately um, positively impact the outcome for our moms and babies. So uh, we developed some expertise in doing dashboards, which we then shared with our communities, our managed care plans, our public health partners, to ask for input in what we could do better. So for example, uh, in our community partnerships, it was a surprise to the communities that at a time that we have this problem with infant mortality, uh, prenatal care during first trimester was not going up, and we cannot seem to move postpartum visits. So uh, that gave the communities some idea of where opportunities might lie. Now, in terms of real time, though, uh, we've had to rely on our community partners to actually tell us, um, and it's this real-time need that actually prompted us to build that web-based form, that pregnancy risk assessment form, so that we would know in real time who's pregnant and how sick they might be. So for us, uh, we're hoping that that ends up being a total game changer, uh, but the point of data is so that others can help be part of the solution, and our focus moving forward is on um, the electronic health record quality measures, as well as leveraging the HIEs for real-time information and action. Terrific, terrific, thank you. I'll, I'll open it up to either New Jersey or Virginia on that data question, and then I'll circle back to the, to the public health side of this. Are there any other ways in which you guys are tracking sort of your early implementation efforts or where you might be seeing you're gaining momentum or making an impact in either New Jersey or Virginia? We too are developing a dashboard and like Ohio, some of it is in claims data. Obviously we look at our heaters, but heaters is after the fact. So what we're doing now is doing utilization trends to see if we're doing it, making a difference. And the big one for us is eligibility trends. We are watching that very, very closely, especially with the expansion, to see if we're making a difference in the first measure, which is can we get women in quickly and fast, and, and, and trying to see those barriers. And also an art addiction treatment, too, is another priority for us, for this population. For New Jersey, I would just jump in to say that we're very focused on pulling the data down from the perinatal risk assessment, as I mentioned before. Uh, we'll be able to use that both in real time and after the fact uh, to measure some of the success of the interventions we're employing. This is Ohio. I'd like to just make one additional comment, and that is related to the conundrum around social determinants of health, the lack of standard mm -hmm. definitions, the different combinations of them, the fact that 
we don't have very many Z codes and people don't submit them. Uh, so what we ended up doing as a shortcut to try to understand where kind of the burden of social determinants might be is we mapped out the entire state along census tracts along the main domains of social determinants of health with our academic partners so that we know the census tracts where we need to pay the most attention if we have women who are pregnant. And that for us has been very helpful as a shortcut to the real-time data from multiple community business partners. So just food for thought, um, partnering with academic centers may actually help us think of novel ways to address the issues. Terrific. Thank That's you. really exciting, Mary. Yeah. I have heard about that in, in previous presentations, and I, I think it was a really innovative way to get at, um, uh, not around, but in some ways around some of those data matching conundrums, et cetera, um, was to take that population health view. Mary, you mentioned the, your partnership with um, academic medical centers or academic partners. Um, have there been other partnerships with your public health colleagues that you have been leveraging as part of this work? I know, you know, both, all three of you mentioned how high profile this work is in your state, being led by either your first lady or the governor himself um, in the state of Virginia. But how have you partnered with your public health colleagues in some of the efforts that you've been designing? That's actually a very welcome question. I don't think Medicaid agencies can do this work without publish, public health because we have to be in step to not confuse people. You know, we need the same definitions. We need to have the same messages around implicit bias, for example. And one of the things that we're very aware of is we've had to get to place-based strategies, which is actually why our opportunity index mapping was so important. And this is an area of expertise uh, in the public health arena. So really bringing funds uh, to those areas with the deep knowledge that public health has has really helped us launch uh, the effort in a way that we've been able to see some reduction. Uh, we have tried to share data so that we don't have two different dashboards and we're still working through that process. But the other thing that we've done is if we have funded home visiting or other community efforts, we have asked those entities to do all their reporting through an existing public health platform that's used for their usual home visiting programs, McVie and beyond. So there is a sort of a central database of the community-based services that we're trying to build with our public health partners. Uh, in Virginia, we too uh, have learned the hard way, but a good way, that we cannot do this kind of work without our public health partners and have developed a collaborative. And the collaborative is in layers, obviously the agency head, but also uh, um, even in our lower staff, the actual working staff, we have them working together collaboratively. Uh, there are, um, they meet monthly as a group, and on every major project now we work together because we're trying to get that information across. For example, is for Nashby, actually, uh, we're working on a MCH PIT project in which we're working on how to increase um, screening for substance abuse for pregnant women, and we found that to working together with our public health partners as well as the health systems made a big difference in moving that project forward. But at this point in time, even um, uh, two weeks ago, I met with the agency head uh, for public health because, again, we always want to stay aligned on all the issues so that we're not just working on Medicaid issues, but improving the health for all Virginian pregnant women as we're working forward. Terrific. Well, I think, um, you know, again, as a population health concern, it makes a lot of sense to me that you all have um, been working so closely with your public health partners. I'm going to turn to ASTO to see if you could provide us with an overview of what you're seeing 
um, in terms of efforts on this issue nationally and then um, core partnerships that you're observing with Medicaid programs? So I think our colleagues in the states have really laid out a lot of great activities that we've seen going on from the national perspective. I would say on the public health side, I think this issue has been a real opportunity for public health to bring together multiple stakeholders, agencies, and other partners. And I think we've seen this in sort of a data to action framework. So we have multiple states have these maternal mortality review committees, perinatal quality collaboratives, as folks have mentioned today. And we've seen these lead to state listening tours, for example, as mentioned in Virginia, health opportunity indices or social vulnerability indices, as well as community resource databases, um, as, as was just mentioned. There are also some other opportunities um, like NC360 we know is happening in North Carolina. North Dakota has a similar Main Street initiative sort of in that space. And we've also seen expanded investments in evidence-based home visiting programs. So for example, in addition to some of the states already mentioned, Virginia's governor just announced in their recent budget proposal an expansion of 1,000 slots for their nurse family partnership visiting program with an increasing focus on the mom-baby dyad and more screening for postpartum depression. We've also seen some partnership really focusing for both state health department funding, but also an increased focus on Medicaid sustainability and really sustaining that um, financing mechanism for these home visiting programs. We've also seen um, some increase in models to increasing access to high quality uh, prenatal care. So as mentioned, centering pregnancy as an existing evidence-based model, as well as risk appropriate care. Um, and I'll turn it over to Christy to briefly discuss CDC's model. Thank you, Alex. So just to cover really quickly, uh, risk appropriate care is a strategy that assesses uh, levels of care within health facilities to ensure that pregnant women and infants um, who are at high risk of complications actually receive the care at a facility that best that is really best prepared to meet their health needs. I want to touch base really quickly. I think I'd be remiss we talk a lot about maternal mortality, um, certainly and infant mortality, but I would like to see um, the conversation also begin to include severe morbidities. Um, what we see and what we know from the data, you know, we're looking at 700 deaths per year um, of pregnant and postpartum women, which is a tragedy in itself. But when we look at the numbers, we're actually experiencing upwards and over 50,000 um, negative outcomes due to complications um, and severe morbidities that women either have, you know, a, a long-term trajectory, um, certainly, um, and the costs associated with that, with those um, um, difficult outcomes that they're experiencing. I'll go ahead and turn it over to Alex. And I would just add a couple of other examples um, from the public health perspective and partnering with Medicaid. Um, I know just another opportunity that has occurred in Delaware, um, the state health official there has led an, an initiative in 2019 to provide mini grants to community-based organizations are working on maternal mortality and morbidity 
and this has been impacted and influenced by the state's maternal mortality review committee um, and also led to recommendations for Medicaid policies. And I think that's a trend um, as discussed today that we've seen in many states kind of taking that leadership approach, public health using their data to inform um, how Medicaid can sustain some of these evidence-based interventions and recommendations developed from the public health side. And this is Christy. I think overall, uh, uh, an important point, and we've heard this from um, some of the state Medicaid directors who are presenting today, the partnership component of the work that's happening is extremely important. So looking across the agency, um, utilizing data to inform some of those policies, linking policies to action, and sometimes even reversing, uh, reverse engineering action to support these policies, meaning, um, you know, what are we doing to implement or operationalize to make um, providers aware of the work that's um, been done around policy and their role. Um, an example of this would be the risk-appropriate care and taking a look at the covered lives through Medicaid and the role that perhaps FQHCs or um, primary care offices might play in understanding the risks, identifying the risks, and really understanding um, the risk-appropriate care and the locate tool that actually is a part of a um, a hospital or birthing hospital's um, purview to be able to utilize to identify their ability to um, treat uh, their pregnant um, and postpartum women appropriately. Terrific. Thank you so much uh, for, for bringing that public health perspective again, um, since this is such a critical partnership. Mark, I'm going to turn it over to you now um, to, to bring out the highlights of the areas of leadership that have been um, talked about through this important work and sort of other observations that you have from our conversation. And then we'll go ahead and wrap up. Gretchen, thank you. Uh, I, uh... I feel so privileged to be part of the conversation today. Uh, the amount of work that's happening in these three states, but across the country is really quite remarkable. And it's, it's made me reflect during the conversation that oftentimes when we talk about Medicaid in particular, people think of it as uh, frankly, a Byzantine silo of technical terms and gobbledygook that people have a hard time even following what uh, we're talking about when we, discuss the technical piece, Jen, that you pointed out in terms of payment models, state plans, waivers, all this stuff around delivery systems. Uh, but I think this is such a good example of how all of those levers can be brought to bear really quickly and efficiently uh, when we add a few components about leadership buy-in. Uh, all of you have talked about the importance of uh, your governors uh, in New Jersey, the first lady, uh, and the and the level of buy-in uh, amongst you and your peers to really take information about uh, a vision of what could be accomplished if we use those levers to make a difference. And uh, the ability to use data also stands out to me. Uh, the ability to translate the work to be done with clear information 
as unfortunate as it is, related to how many more black women die uh, than white women. It, our work, the technical work seems to be so much easier when we have that leadership buy-in and the ability to provide clarity about the vision of our work in that way. Uh, I also appreciate in the conversation, the importance of talking explicitly about race. I think that's, uh, I seems to be something that maybe Medicaid programs in particular, uh, public health I think has been, has a history of uh, frankly being better at that. And I think my hope is that this is one example of how Medicaid programs can continue that work because uh, I reflect in the conversation about how important the ability to talk clearly and plainly uh, influences the progress that you've been making. And uh, I'll maybe just point out two last things that struck me. Uh, one was the importance of collaboration. We talk about that frequently, uh, central to our work and not always easy, uh, but I hope that this is an opportunity that is building that, that muscle of collaboration. And early on, Karen and I think Jen, you both pointed out, no, actually, uh, um, I think it was in Ohio, the importance of engaging consumers and talking specifically to black women and understanding from their experience what's driving this problem, but also what is the solution. Uh, I think that that has been a reoccurring theme in some of our podcast conversations about how do we include the voices of consumers into the design of our, our systems, but also the evaluation of are they working. So I, I really feel grateful for all that you've brought out in this conversation. It's really been wonderful. Thanks, Mark. This is Hillary again at NAMD. And I just want to echo Mark's remarks there. It's amazing to hear the work that everybody is doing. Um, as you can tell, this conversation was really packed full of strategies and efforts that you are making in your three states and that um, states are doing nationally to address this issue. So we just appreciate all of the attention and energy and focus um, that you're demonstrating and the leadership um, as well to tackle um, a really difficult but meaningful um, public health issue. So with that, I want to thank everybody who participated today um, in the conversation. It was really um, a packed house of wonderful um, leaders with thoughtful insights. And we will continue um, to find topics that will delve into the priorities of Medicaid agencies um, and your sister agencies um, across states. So once again, I encourage everyone to subscribe to our podcast, the Medicaid Leadership Exchange on the Apple Podcast Store, or keep an eye out on those future podcasts when we post them to the CHCS and NAND website. So thanks again, everybody, and we will talk to you next time. Thank you. Thank you.